please stand for the reading of God's word? John chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Um, this is God's word. There's a scene in the movie Parenthood where Steve Martin's character bemoans the travails of life. The ups and downs, a moment of pride is turned into a mountain of embarrassment. Feeling of success is quickly replaced by feelings of failure. Times of joy turn into times of sorrow. Glimmer of hope is crushed by disappointment. So as he's venting to his wife, his elderly mother-in-law shuffles into the room and says, you know, when I was 19, Grandpa took me on a roller coaster. Up, down, up, down. Oh, what a ride. I always wanted to go on again. You know, it was just so interesting to me that a ride could be so frightening. I could be so scared, so sick, and yet so excited and so thrilled altogether. Some didn't like it. They went on the merry-go-round. That just goes around. Nothing like the roller coaster. You get more out of it. Life is a roller coaster, whether we want to be on it or on the merry-go-round. It's scary, but it can be exhilarating if we remember that God is in control. His plan is perfect, and he won't let our lives go off the track. Let's pray. Our Father, as we enter into these momentous events in Jesus' life, may your spirit bring them alive this morning, no matter how many times we've heard this. Lord, bring it afresh and retransform our lives again in light 
of Jesus' sacrifice for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> we all go through times when life seems chaotically out of control, even out of God's control. We can't fathom why God is allowing what's happening to happen. We pray he doesn't appear to answer. So we ask, Lord, where are you when we need you most? You know, that must have what the Christ followers must have felt during Jesus' last week. It began with high hopes, which were quickly dashed when Jesus was arrested. Life came crashing down, and it appeared God had abandoned them all. But that wasn't the case. This morning, we're going to look at the apparent triumph of Palm Sunday, which quickly soured into the apparent tragedy when Jesus was arrested. And finally, we'll see that God was truly in control. His fingerprints were over everything that took place, leading to a true triumph. So hopefully, as we walk this journey with Jesus, we'll learn to trust God even when things seem out of control. We're going to take this journey where nothing appears as it seems by looking first at the apparent triumph of Palm Sunday, then the apparent tragedy of Jesus' arrest, and then the true triumph of the cross. So we begin with the apparent triumph by reading verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus' ride into Jerusalem was the apex of his ministry up to that point. He had rarely acknowledged that he was Messiah. He had certainly never trumpeted it loudly. Very few believed. Most did not believe, some for just a moment. But on this day, the crowds that came for Passover swelled around Jesus, proclaiming him to be their king, their long-awaited Messiah. And so the people waved the palm branches and they laid them before him. See, palm branches were deeply significant they had become a symbol of Jewish nationalism two centuries earlier. When Simon Maccabeus drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and he restored the temple 150 years earlier, the people greeted him waving palms. That was in the memory of the Jewish people. During the wars of Jewish rebellion, the insurgents made coins with palm branches on it. It was truly a symbol of Jewish victory over oppression. That's what they were celebrating in their king. Their use heralded the arrival of the long-awaited victorious king 
and it should have been unmistakable to everyone. So this image was reinforced by the acclamations of the masses, which actually mirrored Psalm 118, two of the verses were read this morning. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When they greeted Jesus with the word Hosanna, Hosanna means save us. And it's reflected in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord, which is followed by the proclamation of Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people were announcing that their Messiah had arrived, the King of Israel, who would save them from their oppressors, a victorious day of triumph. That which had been whispered in secret among a few was now a resounding pronouncement by the multitudes. John points to this day as the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. We read it in John 12, 14, and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Jerusalem, Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This prophecy about the Messiah was well known among the religious leaders. They were confused by it because it seemed to conflict with Daniel 7.13, which spoke of the Son of Man coming on clouds. So they didn't understand that Jesus would come twice. So which way was Jesus going to come? And so they decided to kind of split the difference with an either-or interpretation. So we read from the Babylonian Talmud. It is written, And behold, one like the Son of Man came with clouds of heaven, where elsewhere it's written, Behold, your king comes to you lowly and riding upon a donkey. And so they decided, If they are meritorious, he will come with the clouds of heaven. If not, he'll come lowly and riding upon a donkey. So Jesus' arrival on a donkey declared that the religious leaders were not meritorious. They were not the leaders that Jerusalem deserved. And so, of course, they wanted to silence the crowd and they wanted to silence Jesus. However, uh, the response to Jesus was so great that it seemed he had won the day. Look at verse 19 of John. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus trumped the religious leaders. It was a great day, a high point when the masses praised Jesus, proclaimed him as their Messiah, saw him as a conqueror of the Romans, and revealed the flaws of the religious leaders who were challenging Jesus. It was a high point with God in control, or so it seemed. 
until it all unraveled within days. And we realized it was not what it seemed. And so we move to the apparent tragedy. Plans had already been in place to silence Jesus once and for all when Palm Sunday took place. And after Jesus had brought Lazarus back to life, the chief priests and Pharisees were more threatened than ever. And they began to think that more and more people believing in Jesus would appear to be an insurrection against Rome. And so Rome would come in and squash what they feel is a revolt and destroy the nation. The high priest Caiaphas then convinced them that one man, Jesus, must die so the nation would not perish. And from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And we see a reflection of that in verses, verse 9 of John 12, which reads, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well as Jesus. Due to the response of the crowd, they determined to get rid of the evidence of Jesus' miracle. Lazarus must die in addition to Jesus. When the masses greeted Jesus on Palm Sunday with hosannas, it looked like a movement toward Jesus, but it truly wasn't. Verse 9 hints that the fact that the crowds were there to see Lazarus just as much as they were to see Jesus, that many of them ran after celebrities. Luke 19 reveals that it was all a sham, at least for many. As Jesus overlooked Jerusalem on his ride, instead of being encouraged by his reception, he wept and he pronounced judgments on Jerusalem precisely because they did not know their day of visitation. They didn't know what this day was all about. We read Luke 19, 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they'll not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Whereas this appeared to be the coronation of the Messiah by Jerusalem, Jesus saw through the dynamics of the day and he felt empty praises and ultimate rejection. Verse 
Behind the scenes, the religious leaders found a traitor among Jesus' disciples, one who would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Satan had control of Judas. Not only him, he was manipulating the fear in the disciples as well. See, Jesus had warned Peter that Satan would sift them all like wheat. Peter was sifted, and he denied Christ three times. The disciples were sifted, and they ran and hid as cowards. Who was in control? It seemed like Satan was in control. The religious leaders were in control. Pontius Pilate was in control. Jesus was arrested, beaten, and crowned with thorns. The crown of thorns made to mock him, to increase his pain, and to ridicule his claims as he's made his way through the streets to the cross. One man held Jesus' fate in his hands. He could release him or crucify him. But Pontius Pilate vacillated, and so he put the fate of Jesus in the hands of the crowd. He presented Jesus or the hated criminal Barabbas to be released as a Passover gift to the Jews. The crowds chose Barabbas. And when Pilate asked, what should I do with Jesus? They cried, crucify him, crucify him. The sentence was carried out as Jesus was nailed to the cross, four soldiers gambled for his clothes, impervious to the pain they were inflicting upon him as he was in agony on the cross. More insults came from those passing by and the religious leaders who jeered at him and claimed victory over him. Matthew 27 those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. The agonizing cries of Jesus from the cross only confirmed the judgment of the religious leaders that Jesus was a fraud. Jesus himself confirmed that God would not save him when in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had completely abandoned Jesus. 
Jesus, who triumphantly rode into Jerusalem, was defeated, humiliated, and executed. He died hanging on a cross, suspended between earth and heaven, belonging to neither, rejected by man, forsaken by God. An apparent tragedy. Where was God in all of this? There's an interesting statement about the disciples made during Jesus' triumphal entry, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, like the disciples, we regularly don't understand what God's doing in our lives. But later, we sometimes do. Later, we sometimes don't, but we will. We will one day. That day may be in eternity. But we'll be able to see what God was doing in our lives through all these roller coaster experiences. What looked like a defeat was the greatest victory of God and of Christ Jesus. Less than two months later, that coward Peter stood in the center of Jerusalem and proclaimed, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Delivered up according to the definite plan of God. See, nothing was ever out of God's control. Satan didn't have an advantage over the Lord. It was all part of the perfect plan of God, even if it didn't look that way when they took Jesus' body from the cross. So what we're going to do is look at each of the stepping stones that seem to be a defeat and see that God's fingerprints were all over them. When Caiaphas said that it was necessary for one man to perish in order to save the nation, God was using Caiaphas's voice to declare the purpose of Jesus' death. Everyone in the nation, everyone in every nation would die spiritually forever unless Jesus died for them. You see it in verses 51 and 52, chapter 11. He, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. Jesus' sacrificial death was for all humanity, and it was forecast by the chief priest who was hoping to bury everything about Jesus. 
quite ironic, isn't it? In the triumphal entry, many voices that cried Hosanna were insincere. But the voice of God resounded through them. This day, Palm Sunday, was the day that Daniel 9 had predicted Messiah would be declared. There was nothing that would silence God's voice, and he would speak and shout that Jesus is Messiah no matter what voices he had to, would use. When Pharisees rebuked Jesus and said, Silence your disciples. Jesus responded, If they're silent, the very stones will cry it out. This was God's voice. Jesus was Messiah. That was his declaration that day. Satan didn't have the upper hand when he entered into Judas or he sifted Peter and the disciples. Jesus sent Judas into the night knowing Satan had taken over. Sent him into the night to receive, collect his betrayal fee. Judas unintentionally served God's plan to move history toward the cross. Something Jesus had told the disciples many, many times before. We saw it in Matthew 16, which reads, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This was always God's plan. Jesus knew that Peter would fail when Satan sifted him like wheat. So when he told Peter that, when he warned Peter of it, he added, and when you're turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus used that to shower his grace, the grace from the cross onto the life of Peter so that Peter could be an example and a voice to all of us who are sinners, who feel we're among the worst sinners of all, can look at the grace Peter received. And he strengthened his brothers, and his story strengthens us. Jesus was mocked with a crown of thorns, fashioned to humiliate him. Instead, it declared that he was king and that he bore the curse of Adam because the sign of curse was that the earth gave way to thorns and thistles. He bore Adam's curse so that he could reverse everything Adam's curse has brought to us. And that will happen when he returns. Pontius Pilate thought he was in control of Jesus' fate. He wasn't. Jesus said right to his face, 
You have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. The callous soldiers who took Jesus' clothes, gambled over them, wore them. It wasn't out of God's hands. It was predicted in Psalm 22. And it illuminates a critical aspect of Jesus' sacrifice. See, in Scripture, clothes symbolize righteousness. And that pictured the reality that Jesus paid for our sins so we could be forgiven, but also imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We wear the clothes of his righteousness when we place our faith in Christ. A theological point that Travis preached on last week. The crowd's vote for Barabbas wasn't a defeat for Jesus. It was another picture of all that Jesus accomplished on the cross. A sinner who deserved death was set free while the innocent man was judged and put to death. See, we call this substitutionary atonement. Jesus substituted himself, took our place to atone for our sin. He bore God's judgment that we deserve. And every believer in Jesus is set free like Barabbas from God's judgment because of it. The religious leaders who ridiculed Jesus with the words, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Of course he could have saved himself, but he didn't. Because had he saved himself, he couldn't have saved us. It was either he took our sins or we would take them. And so he took those words and pushed them aside. Tasted death so we could live. And lastly, God's abandonment of Jesus wasn't because Jesus was unfaithful. It was precisely because he was faithful. His faithfulness was marked by his agonizing prayer in Gethsemane when he saw all the horror that awaited him. And he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. When God the Father abandoned God the Son, it was because he can't fellowship with sin. As a just magistrate, he has to judge sin. Jesus was judged and forsaken, even though he had never sinned. It was because at that moment, our sins were put on him. He became sin for us. And so God had to forsake him. Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is our cry, my God, my God, you've forgiven me. 
And as Jesus said those words, anyone who knew scripture was drawn to Psalm 22 because those are the opening words of Psalm 22. And if you read through that psalm, you will see a depiction of crucifixion 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified. It was telling us the Messiah would be our sacrifice for sin and it would be done on a cross. God was in charge the whole time, even when it seemed like he lost control. You know, our lives are not as momentous as Jesus's, but we have the same God today. The same sovereign God who has not lost control. Like Job, we may question God, but let's not judge him until our life stories are complete and when Jesus triumphantly returns to make all things right. Like the disciples, we may not understand today, but we will when Jesus is glorified. Father, you are present here today. Many of us are going through storms. Some are not, but we know storms will come. May in these storms of life, may we find peace in the fact that you are sovereign and that everything is a part of your perfect plan. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.